Thank you, Marlene. Good morning, church. As by now you've settled in and taken your place, it's not all that different from uh, when we have worship service. There's a gathering here, and some of you come early and you settle in early, and some of you come a little later and you settle in later, and a few come rushing to the couch and rushing to the church at the last minute and kind of unsettled get in. If wherever you are today, um, I have a couple of things to to start out with before I start uh, the, the sermon and the message for the day. And that, um, first of all, is just an announcement. It's a, an announcement that I, I I never thought I would be making. It is that during live stream, uh, we will be locking the doors. So um, from this on forward until we announce otherwise... The doors will be locked during live stream. Church will be locked. And um, not our choice, but it is the result of the decisions being made. The second thing is a big, huge thank you. Um, Every December, every December for my entire ministry in this church... Um, I have had the opportunity to look into your hearts through your pocketbooks. Um, and it's, a, it's kind of a crass way to put it, but I see each year as you're kind of, we're kind of wrapping up the year and um, people are, are asking themselves, who should I bless this year? What should I do? How should I help? Um, your generosity. And again, this December, you have been extremely generous with our church you have been careful to watch out for our needs throughout this time when COVID has kept us apart. And this December is no different. In fact, um, it is just a demonstration of the fact that you put your faith forward and that you trust us immensely. So we will do all we can to live into that trust, to do things wisely with the gifts you have given us, And to remember that they are gifts to us from you on behalf of your church, ultimately to God. So thank you for what you have done. Thank you for the blessings that you give to us. And thank you so much for your support throughout all of the things that are happening. Hopefully, soon we will be able to unlock the doors of the church and allow you to come back in. And um, I'll look forward to that time. I've seen a few of you. From time to time, bumped into one of our family uh, in the store the other day and um, just took a great little uh, reunion. It's weird how those things happen now. A great little reunion in the grocery store. But uh, thank you all for your gifts, for your faithfulness, for your willingness to bless and be uh, supportive of our church in this crazy, crazy time. As Pastor Marlene said, um, we have watched... Uh, Cities burn in the last few months. We have watched cities being taken over by crowds of rowdy folks. We have watched riot after riot after riot. We have seen looting and mayhem all over the country. And in that has been no different in the last week. And so I would encourage you, implore you to continue to pray for God to lay his hand on it all. We only know the narrow piece that we live in. It's probably 
just as crazy in a lot of other places. And so uh, the prayer for the Lord's Holy Spirit to rest in this world and to rest on the people of this world would be very much appropriate at this time. If you're afraid, if you're worried that suddenly revelation is rolling out and those things that you hoped you weren't going to be alive for might be happening, um, we don't know for sure. You may still get to be on the layaway plan. But if not, be assured that what revelation says to us over and over and over again is when we get into the darkest time, when things look like there is just no, no place to turn, Jesus shows up. Every single cycle of revelation from the beginning to the end shows us this repeating theme. This repeating theme, when things look at their worst, Jesus comes and set things, sets things right. God is still on his throne. He does not evacuate his throne because of people's decisions or behaviors. And we are called to follow him, particularly in these difficult times. The world needs now desperately a voice that speaks clearly of the hope that they have in Jesus. So thank you again for uh, your support of our church. We will let you know when we can unlock the doors. And um, thank you for being with us this Sabbath. Would you join me for one more word of prayer? As we open your word, may it come to life. May its application be clear to us. And that we would apply it to us and not to our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to find your way to the book of Nehemiah. Now, um, Nehemiah is placed in a particular place for a reason. If you are familiar with Kings and Chronicles and how they are about, oh, I don't know, quarter to a third of the way through your Bible, if you remember that Chronicles is written as a repeat of the stories of the kings, but it is written after the Babylonian captivity. If that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. But after the Babylonian captivity, Israel saw a need to restate its history. Israel saw a need to re reconnect with its past. And so the chronicler writes down the stories of the kings of Israel, writes down the stories of the nation of Israel so that the people of Israel can reconnect with those past stories. The chronicler is trying to make an, a, a, an abbreviated Reader's Digest version of the history of the nation. They are also very, very careful to track who came back from Babylon because not everyone did. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Not everyone came back, but they were very careful to track the, the, the genealogical records of everyone who came back because those genealogical records connected them with their history, connected them with their roles in that society, connected them with the, the pride of their nation and the people who came out of, out of Egypt in the Exodus and the people who went into Egypt from Joseph's family and the father who was Abraham off in Ur of the Chaldees called by God to go to a city whose builder and maker was God. And as they came back, to rebuild the city that God had chosen, the city that God had built, as they came back to rebuild, to relay the foundations that God had given, they wanted to think about it again. They wanted to remember the things of their past. And so if you're looking for the book of Nehemiah, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, they're there, Ezra and Nehemiah, because in context, 
Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah are written all around the same time. I'm going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm just going to read you a bit of it. I want you to catch a little bit of background. Nehemiah is, he is a cupbearer to the Persian king. And cupbearer seems weird. It seems like, oh, this guy wanders around with the king's cup. Oh, here's your cup, here's your cup, here's your cup. No, it's a much more important job than that. The cupbearer's job is to make sure the king doesn't get poisoned. The cupbearer's job is to make sure that what the king eats is okay for the king to eat. There are tasters who are around to eat the food, to taste the food before the king eats it. Because if someone dies, it would be one of these tasters, not the king. Uh, You really wouldn't want that job if the king was unpopular. But the cupbearer, Nehemiah, he was in charge of making sure everything that passed through the king's lips was safe for the king to have. And so as, uh, as Nehemiah is in this position... He starts to get word, and we open the, the book opens in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Again, what is your connection with Israel? It's through your family, through your bloodline. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with the men from Judah, and I asked them concerning, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah comes to know that things are not going well in Israel. And as he comes to know, those, those survivors, those people who had made it through the 70 years captivity and gone back home are still not doing well. The city of Jerusalem is a broken down mess. The walls are in shambles. The gates have been burned. It looks a lot like it, was, like it did 70 years ago when it was burned and left to smolder into darkness and when it was abandoned by the people of Israel. Now, as they have gone back... Those few survivors, as he calls them, those people who have returned to find a homeland, they have come upon, come to it with great distress. And the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, the city that was the marker of the place where God stood on the planet, is in shambles. And Nehemiah's heart breaks. The Bible says, and I wept. Self-confession. He says, I wept. I was brokenhearted and I began to pray and plead with God. And in my prayer, I remembered the things that God had promised. And in those promises, I reminded God. 
I wanted to, to read with you and have you uh, look carefully at the last of the two verses I want to look at right now. Verses 8 and 9. It's the next words. I read through verse 7. Verse 8 says, To God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Now, I'm not sure I would want to call that to God's attention again. <laughs> but he's, he's got a point. He's going somewhere with this, with this argument, with this request from God. He said, I remember what you told Moses. I remember what I've read. I remember what it says in the text. I remember that you told Moses, if we misbehave, if we go after other gods, if we, get, if we are unfaithful or if we are idolatrous, we will be scattered among the peoples. And we have been scattered. The northern ten tribes were scattered off into Syria and they've disappeared. The, the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin were scattered into Babylon and many of them have disappeared. A great many people have multiplied in Babylon this last 70 years and only 40,000 people have gone home. It's a desperate situation. I remember that you said this would be what would happen. I want you to remember that you said two things to Moses that day. You said, yes, you will scatter us if we were unfaithful. But you also said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, no matter where you've been sent to, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place in which I have chosen to establish my name. No matter where they've been scattered to because of their unfaithfulness, I will call them back to the place which I call by my name. This was true in its moment there. Babylonians treated Israel fairly well. Persians Sending it, sent Israel back, all who wanted to go. Sent them with offerings for God. Sent them with the word that they wanted, that the Persian king wanted them to offer offerings on their altar in the city of Jerusalem on behalf of him and his country because he believed their God had authority and power in the world. Now Nehemiah looks at the situation of those who have returned and he says it's not not turned out as I expected. Lord, I would like for you to continue what you said you would do. You said you would gather them from the farthest corners of the sky and you would bring them back. Lord, I want you to bring more people back. I want you to step in and fulfill the promise of blessing your people once again. It's early. It's early. It's, it's not been long since they've gone home and they're the first things they did was try to, to reestablish the fields and houses for themselves. And they weren't too concerned about rebuilding Jerusalem. There was, they, they had other things in mind. And Nehemiah will return and he will, in fact, get them on that track. But it will be some time yet. But Nehemiah had a hope that God would fulfill his promise because he remembered God's promise. It's interesting that in this, in this, this run-up to this moment, Israel has been recounting who it is. When Ezra, Nehemiah, and the chroniclers all sort of try to reestablish Israel's identity, they don't look at the future. They don't cast a lot of vision about the future. They go back to the past and they say, look, 
Here are the things that God did for us. Here are the ways God has led us. Here's the problem. Here's the answer. Here's the problem again. Here's the answer again. Here are the great kings. Here are the horrible kings. Here are the events that made us who we are. Here's the bloodline that we all share. They went back and said, you need to remember who you are because the fact is for all of us to lose your memory is to lose yourself. To forget who you are. To allow yourself to be identified by something or someone else is to lose who you are. One of my huge worries in the present is that we are getting sucked into the culture so deeply that we are losing an understanding of who we are as a group of believers in the planet. It's not just Grace Point. It's all of Christianity across the world except in those third world countries where things are so horrible they have nothing left to hold on to but God. The rest of us have jumped into the pockets of the rest of the world and taken on the culture and taken on the ideals and taken on the plans and the programs and we've become so much like the world that when the world needs us the most we're unidentifiable they can't find us because we have no testimony we've lost the memory of who we are we have gone so far into the cultural norms of the world around us that we don't know who we are it worries me it was breaking his heart i'm pretty concerned Nehemiah and Ezra and the chronicler will come back and feed their memories. Feed their memories with who they really are. Help them understand their bloodline goes back to Abraham. A man called out of Babylon to go to Jerusalem and establish a nation. A man who had no children and would not until he was a hundred years old. Man who had the promise of God that his children would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And it was true. They did. They were. And for a time, they were the controlling nation. From the time of David to the time of Solomon, they controlled everything from Egypt to Babylon. They were the nation who had engulfed the entire center portion of the Fertile Crescent and everybody who passed by saw the blessings of God on the people of Israel and then the people of Israel forgot God and they fell into a hole, an an idolatrous pit. And God brought the, the enemies of Israel on to take chunks of the land away and they didn't learn. He forced them back into their traditional borders and they didn't learn. And he forced them down into smaller pieces of that traditional border and they didn't learn. Old enemies rose up again. The Philistines began to chunk off pieces of their their national heritage. The the promised land began to be yanked out of their hands and they didn't learn. And the ten tribes of the north had gotten so far away from God that the Assyrians swept in and without the umbrella of God's protection hauled them off. The southern tribes watched all of that and still returned to their idolatries. And with the the blip and the uptick of a few kings accepting, they also wandered away from God. And finally, the last protective covering of God was removed. And the Babylonians were allowed to sweep in and carry them off. 
And even in this, God told them, if you will submit to the Babylonians, I will still take care of you. Quit fighting. This is my hand on you because of your idolatry. Stop. And they refused. They threw the last voice. They threw the last voice in opposition to their desires into a pit and tried to kill him. They tortured and tormented Jeremiah till his life was a misery. Finally, they were hauled off to Babylon. First in a fairly peaceful manner for a captured people, but then more and more violently. And in the last of their rebellions, Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers swept in. Seven years they had been fighting against God's own restrictions on them. God's own prescription of what should happen if you abandon Him. They fought for seven years and finally Nebuchadnezzar's armies tore Jerusalem apart and burned the temple to the ground. And that's that's plus 70 more years of entropy is what's being called to Nehemiah's attention as he begins his request of God. But even in that, he says, God, remember, you made a promise to us. Remember, you told us this might happen. You told us that if we would turn away from you and be unfaithful to you, we would be scattered But even if we were scattered into the farthest reaches of the planet, you would call us back if we returned to you. (laughs) Perhaps we know better than they how faithful God is to that promise because Israel has truly been scattered to the corners of the earth. The Romans pushed Israel out to the edges of their empire, out to Spain and up to Germany and Poland. And those people continued to migrate and, and, and move to further and further reaches till. The, the, a Jewish enclave had moved to the New World in South America, and a Jewish enclave had moved to, the, moved to the New World in North America, and Jewish enclaves had gone all the way to Moscow. They had, they had crept up onto the, to the plains of Europe, and they, they had gone off into North Africa, and when Israel was reestablished in 1948, they began to come back and come back and come back and come back and come back. And from all over the world, those who had been scattered returned. It's interesting that there is a, there's a, a hangover factor on the blessings of God, it seems. It seems that when God makes a promise, that promise isn't temporary. It's continuous. And when you return to faithfulness, no matter how far you run, He'll take you back. You might not be reestablished in the unsullied glory of the past, but you will be reestablished in His hand. God wishes to grant His grace to everyone. That's everyone who hears what I'm saying wherever you are today, no matter where you are in your spiritual life, no matter where you are in your faith journey, no matter where you are. Out to the edges of the planet. Don't forget the importance. I don't know what that means. On my screen it says Pastor Walt. 
Don't forget the importance of memory because to lose your memory is to lose who you are. To lose your memory is to lose the link with what you know about you, about who you are. I want to remind you that if you have been faithful to God in the past, that is your anchor. Don't forget what He's blessed you with. Don't forget how He has taken care of you. There was CBS in 2001 told the story of a woman named Emily. It's not a real name. Emily was getting ready to go to work. She got up in the morning. She's 33 years old. She got in her car. She lived in Dallas, and she began to drive to work. Her mind kind of went blank, and she just kept driving. 3.30 that morning, she came to her senses and realized she was somewhere outside Santa Fe, New Mexico, 600 miles away from home. Not really even sure how she got there. She got out of her car, found a motel, found a motel, got out of her car, went in and went to sleep. The next morning she woke up, did not recognize the person in the mirror, did not recognize the clothes laying across the chair, did not recognize the handbag that was sitting at the end of the bed. She didn't know where she was, who she was, or what this stuff was about. She was entirely lost. She had no memory. And when she was asked, how did that make you feel? She said, terrified. To be a person who does not understand who they are, how they got there, what anything around them means is to be completely lost and terrified. She had no moorings. She had no anchors. There's no, to, no way to choose where you're going if you don't know where you are. I'm fearful for the church that it might lose its understanding of where it is, who it is, and therefore lose its purpose in the world. I'm fearful for any, any individual who doesn't realize the anchor of their faith. Emily found a police station. They went through her car. They found who she was. They checked her name. They figured out where she lived. They got her back all the way to Dallas. She walked into her house where her husband and three kids were and did not know any of them. She'd lost her memory. She'd lost her identity. She'd lost who she was. She had no way of knowing. The poor woman spent the next year struggling to gain back her memory. And with her, her identity. With her understanding of who she was and what the purposes of her life were. Three kids that she had born and she didn't know. Slowly she regained an understanding of who the kids were. Who her husband was. What her job was. She could still do her job. She still had all the skills she had before. She just did not have any cognizant understanding of who she was, her personal history. She could drive. She could read. She could write. She could speak. She could do the job that she was done. She just could not remember who she was, who her family was. A year passed before her memory was restored enough for her to begin to relate to. Memory was restored enough for her to be able to relate to the people she loved. I can't imagine. It's a weird thing, but it isn't solely her experience. There's a man named Ansel Bourne. The Bourne Identity, the movie, it's based on this man. It's, it has nothing to do with him other than it steals his name. Ansel Bourne, <clears throat> 1897, he was a preacher. Rhode Island. Little town of Green, Rhode Island. He was on his way to visit his sister in Providence, Rhode Island. 
on his way out of town, he stops by the bank, takes out all of his savings, and rides off in the opposite direction. He arrives at a small town in Pennsylvania. Doesn't know who he is. Doesn't know why he's in Pennsylvania. But decides, since he's here, he must be here for a reason. He's forgotten about his pulpit, about his people, about his faith. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't realize that he was called of God to be a pastor. Called of God to speak for him on behalf of him to his people. He has a bunch of money that he's taken out of the bank. He assumes that it's his. With it, he, he buys a little general store and becomes a candy maker. Just starts making candy. He knows how to make candy. He doesn't know where he learned how to make candy, but he knows how to make candy. Doesn't know who he is. Takes the name Adam Brown. It's interesting to me that Ansel Bourne took on the name Adam Brown. There was something in there. He continues working, making candy, running the store. Months pass. Suddenly one day, in Norristown, Pennsylvania, Ansel Bourne wakes up and realizes who he is. His whole life has shifted. But suddenly he realizes who he is. Realizes he has a, a, a call, a, a, a reason to be, a, a purpose for his life, and he returns. He returns to Rhode Island. The story doesn't fill in too many of the gaps, how he sold the business, what he did after that. But he returns to his pulpit, and he returns to his calling, and he returns to his name, and he remembers, I am Ansel Bourne. Hmm. It's funny, the movie's called The Bourne Identity, but it doesn't in any way approach an understanding of the identity of the real Bourne. This Bourne returns to his identity and his call. And then, it is in my heart to remind the church today that we are what we remember. And to forget what God has done, to forget how God has called us, is to lose who we are. Lately, we've been swept up in a lot of the messes of the world. Lately, the church has been choosing sides politically in a vehement way and raising ire toward one another as a result. Writing things on Instagram and Facebook and whatever that doesn't really represent who we are because we've lost touch with the memory of the family we belong to and as such 
have joined ourselves to a culture that is tearing itself apart at the seams. The church has gotten swept into a culture that is moving away from God. And as we floating, float along in that stream, we move with them away from God. It worries me. It worries me because there is no future there. Nehemiah says to God, Remember, I remember. Do you remember? It's a funny thing. He's, he's reminding God who never forgets anything because he's remembered. I would like to challenge you and me to find our identity here, to find our anchor here, to find the answers here. That it is in the scripture where we will find the answers. It is not in the newspaper. It is not on the television. It is here. And if we are going to make a difference, this is where that difference is going to come from. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 10. He says to God, remember who these people are? They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. I say to the church, remember who you are. You are the people who were redeemed by God's great power and His strong hand. You are the people whose ticket is punched for heaven. You are the people whom Jesus' blood was spilled for. You are the people whom God is trying desperately to get home. You are the people who are yoked together with Jesus. You and I are the people who represent the message of Jesus Christ to a fallen world. That is our identity. If we lose that, we lose everything. I heard a preacher say this. Being taken to Babylon does not make you a Babylonian. Being born into a culture in America, being swept up in a culture here in America does not make you a Babylonian. See, we can, we can put whatever national title we want on it, but the Bible is clear that the, the, the power movements of the world, those who are grasping for authority and grasping for power and grasping for control, are all motivated by the same system. Revelation chapter 13 says that all these great powerful empires of history have been given their power and their great authority by the beast, by the dragon. That Satan is the one that's behind all of that kind of thing. We are the people who are redeemed. And though we may live in a fallen culture, we are not Babylonians. We must not get caught up in the Babylonian pursuits. We must find our truth here not out there. Truth is not relative. Truth is stated by God. Truth is not relative to the times. It's not relative to the moment. It's not relative to someone's opinion. Truth is truth because God said it's truth. 
I know that's a difficult place for you to stand in the midst of your friends, especially those of you in your 20s and 30s. I understand your friends are all saying, no, it's my truth, it's your truth. No, it's God's truth, and that's the only truth. We have to have something worth believing in in our world because it's getting very hard to believe everything else. And the church is the place that is to be, by its reflection of the word, picture of truth. We do not have to become Babylonians because we live in Babylon. Emily, when she was being interviewed by CBS, it, some time had passed and she was telling the story. She said, you know, I lost 33 years. That was her identity. That was her lifetime. I lost 33 years. And I had to slowly regain it. Imagine that process over a year or more, trying to regain those 33 years. I had to slowly regain that back. But listen to the next phrase. And it is precious to me. Have you ever noticed how a person who who has had a conversion moment when their life had been going in one direction and they finally restored themselves to God, they, they discover all the blessings of God, how excited they are about what they've discovered. They really see what God has given them as precious. They see the sacrifice of Jesus as precious. They see the opportunity for heaven as precious. They see this great, glorious forgiveness as precious because they know what they've lost. And they know what they've gained. That's ours. It's ours to have. It's ours to give. She then says, I've done as much as I can and everything I can to build on that. That memory is precious. You remember best what you connect to emotions. This gentleman is why you have trouble remembering things that your spouse remembers. Because a woman brain, woman's brain connects emotion to everything. It's not a bad thing. You're just broken. Guys, in the third trimester, you had a functional accident before you were born. Your testosterone rolled across your brain and separated the two halves of your brain, destroying the connective tissue between those two halves. And so you do not do a good job of connecting emotion with the rest of your thinking processes. So your wife, who didn't have that testosterone bath in the third quarter, knows a lot of things you can't remember because they are all connected to emotion. Your emotions help you remember things. You remember best what you connect to emotion. And so I I implore you to see Proverbs 4.23 as it calls on you and I to guard our hearts above all else. For your heart determines the course of your life. Be careful what you let yourself be swept up in. And so I leave you with this last word. Let the word of God define you. 
I started this morning and making some announcements and challenging the church to to read through the Word this year. To start at the beginning, start anywhere you want, but read the entire thing. To understand what it says. Not what you think it says, not what you've heard it say. Not what Benjamin Franklin said that you thought was in the Bible. Not what it's just been repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated until you think there's a Bible verse on it. It's so often the case, person will Google some Bible text and discover it's not a text at all. Let your own experience with the Word of God and with God Himself define who you are. Put some of those things into your memory. Underline, think about, pray about, let yourself emotionally connect with things that touch your heart because the things that touch your heart can linger there and define you. The call of God for all of us is to be anchored in our understanding of who God is, not swept away by the Babylonian flood. There was a man named Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king. When it became clear to him that things were a mess in the church, he went to God. And lastly, I would ask you to follow his example and pray for the church. Father Heaven, we, your church, understand that we are far from exemplary. Therefore, we are grateful for grace. We are grateful for things like the story of Nehemiah. We are grateful for the challenge to live beyond the definition of the culture. And we are grateful for your word. We are grateful to live post Resurrection. That the revelation of your character in Jesus is far greater than what Nehemiah had. It's far more authoritative than what any people prior to it had. Help us to see you as creator and redeemer definer of our character, definer of our truth, definer of our future, definer of ourselves. Help us to restore the memory of who we are in you. We pray for your church. We pray for our world which has drifted so far from you. And we ask that the church that is us, the church that we look at in the mirror, 
and speak what we know from you. Your name.